Solomon. Chapter 4. That's the place in your Bible where the pages are still stuck. Just joking. It's one more time. Let's just set our hearts before the Lord and pray and ask him to come. Release revelation. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the presence of the spirit of the Lord that we feel in this house right now. So, God, I'm asking, would you come and illuminate our hearts? Open the eyes of our understanding. We would see. Open the eyes of our heart that we would hear what it is the Spirit is saying to us. Lord, in this hour, we're asking. We know we need equipment in our heart to sustain us in this time. There's turmoil in the world, Lord, yet you've overcome the world. When the storm is blowing, Lord, you speak peace to it. So, Father, I'm asking, would you release revelation, the knowledge of Jesus? Release the revelation of his passions and desires for us. God, I'm asking, release the revelation of the love of God in this time. Equip our hearts and sustain us, God, again. Refresh us and renew us. We open our hearts to receive from you right now. Help me to speak clearly, Lord. In the name of Jesus, everybody that prayed and agreed said amen. Okay, good. We're going to... um. Start a little series on Sunday nights at a Song of Solomon, chapter 4. And I don't know how many weeks. I, I never know how this goes. You know, it, it might be this week. But it'll, it'll be a, probably a few messages. And, um, and so we're going to talk about this, this phrase, the ravished heart of God. So if you're taking notes, you want to write that down. The ravished heart of God. Now that is a very unusual phrase to many of our ears. Um, we don't think of God's heart as ravished. In fact, we don't ever use that word. The closest thing we use to ravished is famished. That's about day three of the fast or whatever. I'm famished. And that's about the only time you use that one. Ravished and famished don't have anything to do with each other. It's okay. I'm just using it for an example. But the point is, we're going to begin to talk about the way God feels toward us for a few weeks here. And it's important, this, this is where we have to, we've got to allow this to happen. We've got to allow the way the Bible uh, phrases and describes things to be the language of our heart. We need not be ashamed at the way the Bible says it and then try to manipulate it and sort of say it in our own way. So it's, because I think what happens is we steal the thunder of the message many times and we go, well, it doesn't really mean that, it sort of means like this. And what we do is we get away from the truth and the reality of what the Scripture says. When the Scripture uses a term like ravished, we need to go ahead and lean into that and figure out what does ravished mean. And so um, I, I, I'm, 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 pretty, I'm pretty strong on this right now because I'm feeling like for a long time I've looked at different Scriptures that were hard to handle. You know, you read the Bible and you read the hard scripture. It doesn't make sense maybe to your mind. And as soon as the language gets tough and as soon as it gets intense, you kind of just go, it doesn't really mean that. It must mean something else. It must mean da-da-da-da-da. And you sort of fill in the blank with something lesser than. Well, the Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't go, I don't really mean this. I really mean this. He goes, no, ravished. 
Now deal with that reality. And he just sort of builds things with this um, descriptively intense language that we need to go ahead and submit our hearts to and say, okay, what are you saying when you say that? And in many, many arenas, not just in regard, and this word is about the love of God, but not just in regard to the love of God, but in many, many arenas, we need to sit there and go, okay, what does your word say to me about the way you feel, the way you operate, the way you are, and without any lens or without any desire to sort of, you know, make it uh, palatable to my heart. That's what we do. Without any desire to sort of make it palatable to me, you tell me what it says, and the Bible speaks over us the reality of God, and then our heart must agree with it. We do, and we, we should approach, that's how we should approach the, the Word and approach Jesus. Not telling Him how He should be, but allowing the Word to tell us how He is, and allowing it to equip our hearts. So, Song of Solomon, okay, before I actually even read the verse, let's just, let's just give a little bit on Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. Described as the greatest song of all time. It's an eight chapter love song. It's an allegory. And the, the, the uh, king or the bridegroom represents Jesus. And the bride represents us. We understand that the church is the bride. At the end of the age, we will be married to this man, Jesus. That is not figurative. That is literal. There will be a supernatural joining of God, all perfect divine God who became a man who put on finiteness with imperfect, finite men. That's why Jesus, uh, he, he as God in, in full perfection, he humbles himself. He not more, more than that. He humiliates himself and leaves the throne and puts on flesh and comes as a man so he can build a bridge. And what he's aiming for is eternal divine partnership with you. And he humiliates himself unto uh, being one. That he becomes one that he, that he created. Super, supernatural humiliation. God who is perfect, who rules the universe and the galaxy and all, he rules everything. The very centerpiece of all existence is the throne. His very words hold together everything. He goes, you know what? I love them. I'll be a man. Forever. So I can partner together with them in love forever. Because I will take care of the veil that separates us. I will be a man. So Song of Solomon is the discussion, it's, it's a song, it's a love song, it's a marriage song. It's a song about the beautiful, perfect God, who is a king, falling radically in love with humankind. It's the story of that. It's the story of what we receive in Him and what our, our union with Him provides us, but it also is the story of what He gets from us. He said, there's a two-way street in this thing, and I want all of it. He goes, I want you to come alive knowing how I feel about you, having all the benefits of the romance that I feel with you. He goes, but there's also something in you that, that pleases my heart, and I want to get it from you. I, want, I have an inheritance in you. That's what he says. The father said, son, I've got a plan. I'm talking about an eternity past, before the planets existed. The father says, he goes, I have a plan. The son, the son goes, what's the plan? He goes, because we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make humans. 
humans. What's that? He goes, yeah, yeah. It could be people that will be able to choose. I'll give them of my spirit and put, put life in them, and they'll have a choice. He goes, and the plan is that you will be eternally joined together in voluntary love with people who will be able to flow back and forth in love with you for eternity. The son goes, I like it. He goes, how are we going to do it? He goes, somebody's got to die. Jesus goes, first in line right here, I'll take care of it. And the story just explodes from there. The Song of Solomon is descriptive of that. Now, Song of Solomon is written as an allegory. In other words, it's poetic language that we have dramatic symbolism in. So, again, the bridegroom is Jesus. The bride is us corporately and individually. And so here, that's very important when you read the verses in Song of Solomon. It doesn't just apply to the other guy who's in the church. It applies to you specifically and personally. That's huge. It's huge. And so the language here is intense. And most of us, we back off of it because we don't think it could apply to us. But it does apply to you, and it applies the way God feels about you, and you've got to know this. It applies the way God feels about you all day, every day. It's how he feels for you. So I'm going to go, I'm literally starting at the pinnacle of the book, in my opinion. I'm starting at the, we're not going to go, I'm not going to teach another Song of Solomon class on Sundays. We're just going to teach on this one concept. But verse 9 is the pinnacle of the, of the book of Song of Solomon, in my opinion. Here's what it says. You have ravished my heart. My sister, my spouse, or my sister, my bride. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes. One link of your necklace. It is absolutely stunning and off of our grid to think this. But this is the truth that the Bible teaches. We know God loves us. Isn't that right? Say a little bit or something, something. Okay, we know God loves us. Okay, good, thank you. Okay, you're a little late, but it's better late than never. We know God loves us. Don't say, <laughs> spit this out. We know God loves us, but we don't consider God's heart as being ravished over us. We sort of go, God loves me because he has to. He's God. I mean, he did the whole Jesus die on the cross thing, so he pretty much has to love me. And many times we reduce the love of God to being something he dutifully accomplishes because he has to because he is God. It's so different. It's so different than that, beloved. It is so, so different. God doesn't love you dutifully. He doesn't love you because he has to. He doesn't love you based on performance. We know that. We know the love of God, it's unconditional love. we got songs, unconditional, unconditional, unconditional. Then why do we work so hard to get his love? I propose because we don't believe it's unconditional. I propose that we work to attain from God affection and enjoyment because we believe that his love has a lot to do with our performance. And I want to say to you that the love of God for you has nothing to do with your performance. Verse 9 of chapter 4 right there, we just read it. He goes, you have ravished my heart. Not your works. Not your ministry. Not your good ideas. You. 
I want you to think about what does that mean then that the uncreated perfect God who's brimming with passion and fiery desire has an object of that desire and that object is focused down in a laser beam and it's you. What does that mean? How is that possible? Oh, it's more than possible. It's reality. It's truth. This is reality. God loves you more than loves like because he has to. God loves you intentionally with passionate, burning desire of heart for you. And so we've got to come and our hearts have got to be equipped with the revelation of God's volcanic. There's a good word for you. Volcanic emotions. And his enjoyment of us. Do you believe that God enjoys you? Don't answer. Do you believe that God enjoys you? Do you think he gets up and smiles and goes, Oh, I delight in this one. I enjoy her. I enjoy him. How do you, how do you suppose it is in the emotions of God for you? If it's any less than explosive, Passionate, fiery, burning, yearning, full of feeling. I propose to you, you don't understand this. I want to say this proudly and boldly, not proudly, but just the way it is. I don't get it. I'm trying to. I'm leaning into this. I'm meditating on this word. I'm allowing these words to seep into my spirit. And I'm getting before it and I'm saying, what do you mean I ravish your heart? Tell me again. What does this mean and what does this look like? Here's the deal. If we think that God's love for us is passive or dutiful. See, passive would just be this. We just kind of think, you know, like, you know he kind of loves us. He mostly loves us. He's not real aggressive about it. Maybe he's sort of like detached and sort of he's loving and we'll feel it when we get there. Kind of a thing. But he wouldn't break into humanity and into our lives to express love to us anyway because he's sort of passive with it. We think he's passive or we think he's dutiful. So many believe he's dutiful. You're God and you have to love, so that's why you love me. You love me, but there's no way you could like me. That's kind of the way it works. I know me. I'm full of imperfection. I'm full of junk. And you have to love me because you're God, but no way you like me. And you certainly don't enjoy me. God goes, it's more than that. I'm ravished for you. Because there's a burning inside of me and an ache. Because <laughs> I want you so bad. I want to be with you. I want to share with you. So his love is eternal. It's not out of a sense of duty. duty. It's out of a sense of deep desire. And it's not passive nor disinterested. His love is passionate, full of emotions. That's a major, big, big, big issue. What we do many times is we believe what the Stoics of old believe, and we think of God as unemotional and detached from feeling. We think that God doesn't feel. We think that if he moves in love, it's sort of this overall, sort of a, a light dusting of goodness from God. But it's not what we know as emotional. See, we know our emotions. We know that our emotions take us on roller coaster rides. Isn't that right? We know that on 285 on Friday at 5 o'clock, the spirit of heavy traffic sets in, and our emotions begin to erupt in all manner and 
sundry and varied ways. And so we know that, and so, or, you know, somebody comes by and, and they look at us the wrong way. And we feel that in our emotions and we go, certainly God is not emotional because I know my emotions. I'm up one day, I'm down the next, and it's not good. Well, God is fully emotional at the greatest measure yet without imperfection. Powerful. Fully emotional at the greatest measure without imperfection. Without contradiction either. He is fully in love and he can, and he can manifest uh, full judgment without contradiction. Listen, I don't want to go there. Anyway, the point is, God is on 10 in desire and love and passion for you. Emotional at the greatest measure. And everything he does, he does with emotion and feeling. The Stoics were wrong. So, what I want to do tonight is I want to just give an over, sort of a, uh, an over, sort of an introduction, overview kind of, an, it's not really an overview, it's an introduction. And I'm going to just give you like, like seven things that God's love breeds within us. Seven things. There's more than seven. I always feel like if I ever give a list, I just got to sort of give you the thing and say, okay, it's not the entire, these are not everything God's love breeds in you. These are the seven that I'm telling you. Because the guy gets up and he goes, seven things God's love does in you. And we walk away thinking, well, it only does seven. Couldn't do eight. It's not six. It's seven. Guy said it. I'm telling you, there's probably 7,000 things the love of God does in you. I know seven of them, and five of them God gave me before we started the service. <laughs> so there it is. All right, number one. <laughs> I will continually point to the fact that I'm a big dork. And the reason why is because there are no superhumans in Christ. We could be raising the dead, casting out demons, have an open heaven over the entire city, and the prayer movement could have something to do with it. And at the end of the day, I'd be a dork that lights pizza and football. It's really the truth, beloved. Just please. The heavy dutyest prophetic guy that's got all the revelation, sees angels and all that, he's a big dork. For real. We just got to get over it, for real. We just love them, and we esteem them, and we, we, bless, we bless everyone. But, and and it's not, dork isn't a jerk word. It's not like I'm mad at you. It's just we're all human. We all are what we are. And I just, I just I have fun with that. I have fun pointing to the fact that I'm glass darkly just like anyone else. Glass darkly. We all see in this age, see through glass darkly. All right, number one, revelation of God's love. Breeds, number one, through us. It, number one, breeds confidence. When you come to a revelation that Jesus loves you, it will breed confidence in you in two ways. Confidence before God, and secondly, confidence before men. Confidence before God means that when we approach Him, we don't approach Him in shame, cowering, wondering if He approves or accepts. But that even, here it is, even when we have sinned and even when we have displayed weakness, this is huge. Even when we've displayed weakness, we are able to approach him with confidence in our heart that he loves us. And even when he corrects us, when we understand the love of God, we, we, don't, 
We don't associate his correction of our, of our activities and lives and correction of our heart. We don't associate correction with rejection. We, we see those as two different things. God does not reject. He accepts you. And when he disciplines you, it's because he loves you. And so when we have a revelation of love, it breeds confidence in us. Even when we've sinned, we're able to still, quote unquote, what the Bible says in Hebrews, it says we're able to boldly come to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. How can you boldly come to the throne of grace if you do not believe he enjoys you and desires you even when you're weak? It's huge. Most of us believe that when we sin, we have to take a time out and go sit on the bench and do penance in the penalty box. You know, big sin, more penance, little sin, less penance. But we've got to do some time in purgatory with God until he decides we're okay and then we can get out. It's not how it works. When God was enjoying you today and you were feeling the presence of the Lord and you thought you were without sin... This is how it goes. You, we think, I'm feeling his presence. I'm doing good. I'm right. He goes, there's 50 things I'm not showing you. I still love you, though. We think we've got our three issues. God goes, there's 50. The, those three aren't even them. He goes, I'm veiling you from the 50 because I want you to know I love you. I want you to know I think you're beautiful. Even though you got the 50 issues, I don't care about all those. I care about this. I love you. Come to me. He goes, we'll peel off the 50 in the next 20 years. Not a problem. He goes, those three you got that are your big, big issues, those are product of self-condemnation and, and worthless introspection. <laughs> so he goes, I know what my problem is. I know what my no, God, let the Spirit of the Lord bubble it to the surface. He won't bubble it to the surface with a bat in his hand condemning you. He'll bubble it to the surface and go, see that one there? Let's tweak that. Like, don't do it anymore. He says, I love you too much for you to waste your time in that. And you go, yeah. Did you, and you, as soon as you say, yeah, he goes, beautiful. I love it. That's repentance. Repentance isn't, you know, you have to wail and weep, though it could happen that way. And, and I don't say anything wrong with that. I love wailing and weeping repentance. A lot of times it's working something deep and there's healing and beautiful things happening. But repentance is not... It, it's not only coming to the altar wailing and weeping. Repentance is this. I agree with what you say about me, God. I quit, I quit agreeing with something false, and I start agreeing with what you say. Yes. You're saying that this is not helpful for me to do this, and so, so I say yes to that, that you're disagreeing with sin and the devil's way, and you're agreeing with God. That is repentance. It's turning from sin and turning to him. So confidence in your heart means that you know that God desires and delights in you. You know he, he loves you and he's passionate about you. And that even in weakness you can come to him. Confidence before men. It's so much better. It's not so much better. It's so much different, but it's, it's so much better way to live. Not better than confidence before God. Confidence before men is this. I know God loves me. I have a clear view of his opinion for me. God's opinion of me is solidified in the fact that he desires me, he loves me, he thinks I'm beautiful, he, he has nothing but pleasure over my life, 
And so therefore, I'm confidence before men. I have confidence before men because I don't have to try to toil to get your approval. I have the approval of the one whose opinion matters. I don't have to work trying to get all the other ants to approve of me. And here's where we live most of our life. We live most of our lives emotionally expending ourselves, toiling for validity. That's a good phrase for you. Toiling for validity so that men will look at us and say, you're good, you've done well. We expend tons of emotional energy fretting and worrying about what that person thinks and what this person thinks and what this person thinks. It could be your mother, your brother, your friend. It could be the media. It could be whoever. But we spend all of our, so much of our time living on this planet worrying, do they approve? When you have a, a, a heart revelation, a living revelation of the love of God for you, I guarantee you, when you are uh, deeply rooted and grounded in the revelation that God approves of you, even regardless of whether or not you're weak, He approves of you, you will not be trying to work to get some guy's opinion. You're working for an approval of his opinion. How am I saying it? You won't care about what they think. That's what I'm trying to say. For real. I said this the other night, but it's just, it just bears repeating. What if you could have back all the emotional stress and energy that you've spent in life in trying to manage and gain the approval from people? What if you could have all that back in like a pill? <laughs> Don't take it all at once. <laughs> what about this? What about if every day that you live from this day forward is free of expending your life on what other people think? What if you live confident before men? I'm not talking about cocky. I'm just talking about, hey, I've got God's love, and it's okay that you don't like me, for real. It's totally fine. God loves me, and it's just really okay that, you know, you think A, B, and C. It's just okay. I mean, do we, how often do we touch that? It's okay when they don't like you. It's okay when they're talking negatively. It's okay when things don't go well, and he said, she said, negative stuff. It's, how often do we live there? It's called fear of men, beloved. Perfect love casts out all fear. How do you get there? You've got to drink deeply of the revelation of God's love. You need to take Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 9. You have ravished my heart. You need to to pin it on your mirror. You need to say it to yourself and read it and pray it and say it, say it again over me, Lord. And you need to chew it. You need to, to douse your soul with it until it becomes a living revelation inside you, until you wake up every morning and you have that sense of, of the joy of the Lord over you. Until then, we'll toil for validity by trying to prove that we're good. We spend massive amounts of energy doing it. 1 John 3, 18-22 discusses the concept of alive in love and confident in heart. Okay. Number two. Number two thing. Ravished, the revelation of God's ravished heart for you. It gives you might in your inner man or energy within. See, it's, we use this term in the church a lot. We, we talk about being burned out. If you're soaring in intimacy and love, you will not burn out. 
because that's what gives you energy on the inside, what we call might in the inner man. So well, there's a couple of thoughts I have. Say you go through a hardship, you go through a trial, you go through a pressing situation. You need an internal strength to be able to sustain you through it. Now, can I tell you this? I don't care how, um, how tough your heart is and how much you can set your face like flint. There are trials and tribulations that are available for your life that will squeeze you so hard that I don't care how strong you are within, it will, it will pop you. There's no one that tough. However, might in the inner man, supernatural power from God within you, fortifying your heart in the time of trials, in the time of tribulations. What am I talking about? I'm talking about you know he loves you. You know he's got your best at hand. You know it's going to be okay. Your heart is alive. You're soaring within. When the pressure comes, guess what? That will sustain you in that time. And there is no tribulation, no trial, no trouble that can come your way that is greater than the reinforcing power of the, the revelation of the love of God in your heart. So it gives you might in the inner man. I want that. I want might in my inner man. I want an internal fortitude that can't be touched, moved, or swayed by any of the pressures this world can offer me. I, I want to say, I want to be able to say strongly in, in humility, but in confidence, that God loves me and my heart is alive and invigorated. And no matter what hell can bring to me, I will stand in the revelation of his love. That's where I want to live. Alive in that place, soaring in intimacy. And what happens to us many times in, 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 in Christianity is we, we motivate ourselves by the, uh, the reality of urgency that comes through uh, knowing about needs. We, we get uh, the uh, report on how many starve in the earth and our heart gets burdened with an urgency for the poor. Say that's good. I say we have to have an urgency that breeds action. And I think that we've got to look into the truth of the state of the things in the world. And we need to say, okay, what's the deal with this planet? What's going on here? And it should cause our heart to ache. We should have an urgency within. But here's what I want to say to you. If all you have is urgency motivating you, it will crush you. You've got to have an internal reality of God's love to sustain your heart when you're staring into the destitution that this planet offers. It's called burning out, beloved. It's what many of our missionaries experience on the field. They go running in urgency to the field of ministry. Needs all around them and their hearts are laden. and They don't have a depth in the reality of the love of God and it crushes them. And they find themselves off of the field within 18 months. The average missionary on foreign soil from the United States lasts 18 months. We've got to have an internal uh, revelation of the love of God that will sustain our hearts as we're looking into the needs that are in this planet. So it gives us might in the inner man. Third thing. Revelation of God's love for us, it breeds passion for Jesus. Passion for Jesus. 1 John 4.19 says it so cleanly. We love Him 
because he first loved us. If you want a heart, somebody goes, I want to be on fire for God. If you want a heart that's on fire for God, feed your spirit continually on God's affections and emotions for you. What we think is we need to feed ourselves on urgency and, and hard messages on sin. And I, and I say, yeah, feed, feed yourself on that. Feed yourself on the destructive power of sin. and Feed yourself on the, the reality of, of the needs on the planet. But you have got to, uh, firstly, and more than any other thing, feed yourself on the revelation of his passions for you because it will evoke in you a, a corresponding action of passion for him. If you want to be on fire for God... Feed your heart on the revelation of God's love for you before anything else, and your heart will, be, will be get lit up with desire and passion for Him. I'm not talking about just, a, just the, the bottom level. I know He loves me. I know He loves me. I'm talking about God's emotions and joy for you. God's desire and delight for you. He delights in you. You know, so I, I say these things quickly, but here, here's, the, here's the, where the question has to get, it, it begs the question. When I say God delights in you, when I say God enjoys you, when I say God is passionate for you, when I say God loves you and he's ravished for you, are you able to say that back to him without that thing inside going, eh, <laughs> that one's not true. Are you able to say back to him, you enjoy me. You delight in me. You're emotional and fiery in love for me. Are you able to say it back to him? Are you able to pray it? You know, most of us, we go, you enjoy him over there. And you enjoy that guy that's on TV that's doing all that ministry. You enjoy him because he's working hard for you, but I'm not measuring it. Come on. You want to be on fire for God. You want something within you that will sustain you. Feed your heart on the revelation of his passion for you. This is the way you're built. Your frame is built like this. Your heart responds. The cords of your life respond out of the revelation of the corresponding revelation in him. I'll say it differently. When. <laughs> my wife told me. Okay, I will go to when you have a revelation of an attribute of God, there's something within you. It's pre-programmed to respond to it. When you see the beauty of God, beauty comes alive in you and it motivates you. When you see the fear of God, the fear, that cord is struck within you and fear is touched and, and wisdom comes alive in you. And that's how it works. When you see the love of God and his emotions for you, is struck in your heart and passion comes alive in you for him. Your heart on the revelation of God's love for you and it will evoke fire in you for him. It will evoke passion like you've never known. You won't have the, I'm on fire this week and I'm sort of bummed out next week. You'll have a, a heart that's alive and soaring the knowledge that he loves you. He desires you intimately. Four, it brings, it breeds a love for others. And this is how it works. When you realize that he loves you and your imperfection and your weakness and, and your, all your stuff, and you know he loves you in that, then you look at the guy next to you and you go, 
No, wait, he loves him like that too. And you go, wait a minute. He loves him like, I have to love him like that. I want to love him like that because God loves him like that. When I began to understand how God loved me, I started just giving people big time breaks. You know what I'm saying? I used to be sort of like, man, you cross me. And I realized God, he never treats me that way. He never goes, oh, you stepped in line, Humphrey, smack. He goes, Humphrey, I love you. Step back in line. I go, yes. And that's the way he deals with the guy next to me every time. The way he feels for me is the way he feels for that person that's next to you. And it, it can enable your heart to love them without having to make them prove uh, themselves to you. Because you have a revelation that God doesn't treat you that way. This is, this is the reality of serving. This is where serving comes from. When you realize that he loves another, that he loves another just the way he loves you, it compels your heart to partner with him in loving them. All right. Five. It gives you a desire for holiness. I've got to move through five and six quickly. The bottom line is this. When you come to a reality that God's love is for you, and you're touching it and you're tasting it and you're sensing the pleasure of God's uh, desires for you, alive in you, you will willingly let loose of everything else that's in the way. You will not want one other thing that's in the way. You will not want anything to hinder your love relationship with God. When the one who is love is releasing the very burnings of his heart upon you, you're soaring in pleasure and delight because the one who is love is loving you and you're sensing it and you're believing it and you're tasting and seeing it. You will get anything in your life that's in the way out of the way. It's the goodness of God that will draw you to repentance. All right, six, it breeds contentment. What do I mean by that? I mean this. When you're touching pleasure at that level, for real, the greatest pleasure available to humans on the planet is flowing back and forth in love with God. It is the greatest pleasure available to humans on the planet. There is nothing else greater. The uncreated God, who is love itself, wants to love you deeply. It is the greatest pleasure available when you flow back and forth in love with Him. If that is the greatest pleasure available... What else do you need? All of a sudden, you become, you become content with Target brand and pay less shoes. When your heart is adorned with the beauty of the Lord, because you're soaring and alive in intimacy with Him, and His pleasures are alive in your life, you come to the revelation. You don't need anything else to make you great. You have the one who is the greatest one. And you have his pleasure in your life. What else could you need? Here's, here is the story of us in the West. We're discontent and unsatisfied because we don't know love. That guy that wrote that song, he was right. Looking for love in all the wrong places. He was right. It's the story of the West. 
when you when you begin to touch here's here's the real truth when you begin to touch the love of god and it's making your heart come alive your definition of success changes dramatically success is not having as much money as you can get so you can demand the most amount of people to do whatever you want them to do for you success is something you carry within you it's a sense of the pleasures of god in your life it's flowing back and forth in intimacy and love with this one who loves you so dramatically success whether it comes before a, a crowd of five million or a crowd of five children that's still success because you're content in heart all right number seven and this is the one i preached the whole message to get to love produces in you blamelessness Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Blamelessness. Interesting term. Blamelessness. Ephesians 1. We'll look at this and then we'll close. Lord, I'm asking, awaken love in us. In the name of Jesus, release the revelation of the knowledge of the passions of your Son upon us. Remove the veil. Remove the veil, God. Let us see eyes of fire gazing upon us and desiring us. Perfect desire. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says this. Just as he chose us, next to chose, right, desired us. I like that. As he desired us in him before the foundation of the world. God had a dream in his heart. You think about this for a moment. God had a dream in his heart. He knew how all the DNA would work to create the cells that would weave together emotions. He knew what the spirit inside you would, cre would, would create and call you to be before the foundation of the world. He goes, I need one with brown straight hair, green eyes, this long hands, this tall this attitude, this mentality. He weaves the DNA together and he goes, there. Oh. And he does it billions of times. He desired you before he formed the world. Do you know what that tells me? He made the world for your pleasure. He goes, I've made this one that I love. I need somewhere to put him. Let's make a planet. Let's make mountains and let's make valleys and let's make flowers and streams and rivers and let's make an ocean and let's make color and sight and sound. Let's do all of it so they can enjoy it. He desired you before he formed the world. He made you before he made the planet and he made the planet for you, for your pleasure. Because just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world desired us before the world he, and he chose us he desired us for this thing that we should be holy and without blame before him in love we just bring the keyboard just down a little bit just, i've just got a minute left so just thanks that we should be holy and without blame before him in love and he predestined us now we, now we just dropped out let's bring us up a little bit thanks <laughs> We set the mood, but whoa. 
go again. He desired us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We say without blame. Say without blame. Blameless. Philippians 1, 9 and 10, it says it this way. It says, and this I pray that your love would abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you would approve the things that are excellent, that you'd be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 3, 13 says it this way. So that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blamelessness is this. You get a revelation that God desires you and He loves you. He's passionate about you. He enjoys you and He made this place for your good. And all of a sudden, you live life as a result of the revelation of his love for you. You live life without any accusation in your heart toward him. Blameless. You don't blame God for anything. You don't keep the five things in your pocket that went wrong in life and go, God, you did this to me. See, most of us, we have little four or five things that happened. We keep them in our pocket. When things get pressed and things get trials and trials come and things get pressing and trouble in our life, we sort of just reach in. Most of us don't take them out and shake them before God. We just sort of run our fingers over and remember. Yeah, I remember that. Remember when I was 18. My life took that turn. I remember that. I didn't have anybody. Where were you then? We'll carry accusation in our heart our whole life. And it dramatically, drastically affects our view of God. And then things get a little bit better and we go, yeah, God is good. He is good. But we keep a hold of those blames. Keep a hold of those things we're accusing Him. And what we don't realize is all the trials, all the challenges, all the struggles, He meant it for our good. He meant it for our good. I don't have personally all the answers to all of the issues. I don't know. But I know this. He was always there. There's nothing that touched your life apart from his hand allowing it. He meant it for your good. Joseph, standing before his brothers, after being lied about and going from the top to the bottom, top to the bottom, top to the bottom, finding himself in prison, thinks he's going to get out and still sitting there rotting, finally gets out and looks in front, looks his brothers in the eye and they look at him. He said, Joseph, we, we're so sorry. He goes, no, no, no. God meant it for my good. What is that? It's without offense. It's blameless. See, when you have a revelation of the love of God, you are liberated from accusation in your heart. You know why we don't many times enter into deeper measures of the love of God? You know what veils this so many times? We're accusing God. 
we have our little five stones of blame. And you may never take them out of your pocket and shake them at him, but you've got your memory. When the trouble comes on, you just stroke those things and you go, yeah, yeah, you, you're supposed to be good, but you weren't there for me. That one hurt. That didn't help. The entire time, what he was doing is he was crafting and sculpting your life to be one that would hold on to nothing else but him. He let you get in the fire to refine you. He allowed you to get pressed so you'd release everything else and cling to him. And the entire time, Satan is going, see, he's not good. Look what he allowed you to go through. Look what he did to you. You know what? When you, become, when you begin to understand that God's ravished over you, every activity in your life, you realize it has not happened apart from the loving hand of God over you and directing your life. In every situation, God was sculpting and moving in you. Calling you to abandonment and love. Instead, many of us, we hold on to blame. And I, I just ask the Lord, even, even today, I just lean back. I said, God, where do I blame you? Where am I accusing you? What am I pointing to that's disabling me from me being able to believe you're good? What are the stones of offense I have in my pocket that I'm holding? This is what I realized. God is... One of the verses says, the goal, the goal is that you should be holy and without blame. He chose you and desired you that you be holy and without accusation in your heart, in love. And I realize this, that if we have accusation in our heart toward God, we are always susceptible to sin. I thought about it, I think, you know, the devil's real plan is to try to drive an accusation in. He is the accuser. He's the accuser of people. He's the accuser of God. He accuses also us. And what he does is he accuses, and if we'll latch onto this accusation, then he can lure us into sin. He can lure us into rebellion to God. That's what it is. I thought a little further about it. I thought, you know, if I get offended with people and I have an accusation against my brother, I probably have an accusation in my heart against God. If I cry in injustice, they've done me wrong. Where are you, God? How come? With accusation in my heart, I'm susceptible to the devil. The knowledge of God's love gives you insight into his intentions. You understand his intentions for you. And then you understand. If you understand his intentions for you, you understand for real. He is good. He is good. He is good. He is not allowing anything to happen in your life that is not going to perfect you and draw you into voluntary love with him. And here's, here's where it, it just comes home so powerfully. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 says this. It says that he is the avenger of all who have been defrauded. Wherever you've been defrauded in life, God is the one who is going to make it right. 
He'll make it right in this life, and he'll make it right at the end of the age. Here's what I want to say to you. Whatever injustice has been enacted against your life, God is the avenger. He says, vengeance is mine. You have an advocate with the Father, and Jesus Christ, the righteous one, will operate on your behalf to make sure justice is brought for you. Why? Because He loves you. He'll make it right for you. He'll make it right. The revelation of the love of God, you can stand before Him knowing His desire is for you and everything He's done, He's meant for good in your life. And you can stand before Him blameless. Blameless in holiness. Without offense until the day of Christ. I have a friend, he says it like this. If you can be offended, you will be. Accusation is powerful, beloved. The love of God wants to dislodge it from you. The revelation of His good intention for you and and the good pleasure of His will. That's what it says in Ephesians 1. 5 and 6 says, He goes, I made you because of the good pleasures of my will for you. Great desire I have for you. Good. Let's stand. Jesus, would you reveal love again, Lord? Would you reveal your desires for us again? Would you reveal your heart for us again? Would you speak kindly to us and comfort us in your love? Abba, I'm asking, would you come even in this moment and reveal to our heart where we've had offense toward you? Where our hearts have accused you. You are blameless. You are guiltless. How could we stand before you railing in accusation? You're the perfect one. And you love us perfectly. You desire us with perfect desire. Lord, I'm asking right now, release grace. Release grace to us. and Enable us to release 